By His grace, He has left us the written word that we can study together. If you'd open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. I'm not going to read uh, the entire passage before we start. Uh, this time we will walk through it together. But I do want to pray and ask the Lord to open his word to us. Join me if you would. Father, we've just sung, we want to see Christ. Would you show us Christ in your word? Lord, may this not be just an exercise that we do as Christians, but for each one of us here, would we have open ears and hearts to your truth and see Christ and glorify him and respond in a manner worthy of Jesus. Send your spirit to each of us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So before I get started, uh, you all should notice that around all the chairs there are little cards with a phone number on there. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I don't like about preaching is I don't know if you're getting it. I mean, sometimes I do. Sometimes you let me know. But a lot of times I don't know if you're getting it. I don't know if I'm answering all the questions. And uh, so what we're going to start today, and we're going to do this for a few months and see how it goes, is we're going to uh, have some time at the end of the sermon where I'm going to answer your questions. Uh, so you can text in any question you want, and they will be screened appropriately. <laughs> Eric over on the east side said he was going to send in a few just, just because. Uh, so, uh, but uh, we want to get to the, the most important questions that come in. So anywhere through the sermon, you can text to that number questions. They're anonymous. We don't know who's asking them. And I don't think we really have any way to know. So don't worry. You can ask all the ridiculous questions you want to. And uh, we'll make sure the most ridiculous ones get up on the screen so we can answer them. Uh, so uh, just, uh, the idea is just to make sure that if there are some things that I'm not clear on or things that, are, that, are, that come to your mind as, as we're looking at the passage together, we want to take a few moments at the end to address them. And I am committed to being sensitive to our time. I really am. So um, we'll see how that goes, see how my commitments are. So feel free to text in questions uh, as we go today. All right, uh, we're looking at John 16, and we will uh, begin with verse 25. So we just came through the Christmas season, and we know this, that when Jesus was born, he was born the king of the Jews. All right, the, the wise men came to him, and, and they said, when they showed up to uh, the governor, they said, we want, or the king Herod, they said, we want to know where is the, the one who was born king of the Jews. And we know that he, was, uh, he lived his life ready to take his throne, he came to bring the kingdom of God to this earth. But the problem was, very few people in Israel at the time of Jesus' coming knew God. They thought they did, but there were very few of the Jews who had a genuine knowledge of God, love for God, pursuit of God. They were mostly unbelievers. Oh, they played the game. They, they thought they were believers. They thought they were God's people, but their hearts were very hard. And they were 
controlled by their political leaders who were also their religious leaders. Everything the people of Israel did was managed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the priests uh, of their day. And they controlled their thinking, they controlled their practice, they controlled their habits, and, and all of this. They, they micromanaged their lives in many ways. And they, they enslaved them not to the law of God as in the Old Testament, but they added to that law their own instructions. And so as they controlled the people's thinking and behavior and added to it not only their political power, but the fact that they were claiming God had given all this instruction, that weighs heavy on people's hearts. That's, that's what we call a cult, right? When, when someone says, this is how you must behave, this is what you must believe, and you'll answer to God if you don't do everything we say, that's kind of cultish. That was the, the, the milieu, the environment that, that Jesus was born into, and he has come to establish the kingdom of God, and yet these people were, were being oppressed and, and, and led by outside, well, not really outside, inside, they're being led by these political leaders and religious leaders. So what, what Jesus had to do was convince them that he was sent from the Father, and his strategy was to take 12 of them, 12 men, and spend his entire, three, every day of, of the year for them for three years. He invested in them. He led them to, to watch him, to learn from him, to, to, to reveal to them the truth of the things of God. And, and what Jesus had to do with these 12 apostles was dislodge the control of the Pharisees over them and prove to them that he was sent from the Father. Now, he had this going for him. He could do things like walk across the top of water and heal blind people and raise people from the dead. That gets your attention. That should get your attention. If somebody walked in here and raised somebody from the dead, well, go with me here. I know there's not dead people around, but you know what I mean. If you actually saw somebody who had the power to raise somebody else from the dead, um, I would gladly sit down and let them talk because that says you probably should listen to them instead of listening to me right now. Jesus did all these miracles and convinced these 12 men that he was sent from the Father. And that sparked the kingdom of God coming. Well, we're in this middle of this uh, section uh, called the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus has pulled together those 12, and actually there's only 11 now because the betrayer has left them to go start the betrayal. And Jesus is explaining to them what's about to happen and preparing them for his death and resurrection. So that's what we pick up in verse 25 of chapter 16. And we read this. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. He's rehearsing. I've come and you've believed in me, and that's good. And I've been speaking in 
uh, figurative language. I've been, I've been speaking a little bit uh, cryptically, a little, little strangely to you. You know, he says things like, uh, I'm going to prepare a house for you, and I'm going a little while I'll be here, a little while I'll be gone, a little while I'll be back, and those kind of things. And I'm the vine, and you're the branches, and some of that. But he says, one of these days, in fact, a day is coming very soon when you're going to understand exactly what I'm saying. And I will speak plainly to you. I think he's talking about the day the Spirit would come and draw their minds to the truth that he's been teaching, and they will get it fully. But these guys are pretty convinced now they get it fully. Look what it says in verse 29. His disciple says, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Isn't that funny? He just said, the day is coming when I won't do this. And, oh, no, no, you're here, Lord. We got this. Pretty sure it was Peter that led this, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. And Jesus says, really? Do you now believe? Soon your actions will indicate something else. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each one to his own home, and to leave me alone. You guys say you believe, do you? Well, it's just a few hours away, and the soldiers are going to come and arrest me and lead me to a kangaroo court and falsely accuse me and sentence me to execution. And where are you guys going to be during all this? Hiding in the bushes. You're going to run for your lives. You're going to leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. Don't you love that? We know where this is heading. When Jesus is on the cross, in that moment when he takes our wrath upon him, He's going to quote from Psalm 22 and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for a few hours, in, in a, an event that boggles our mind, God the Father turns his back on God the Son and treats him as though he were you and me, as though he were the sinner, even though he's not. Jesus knows this is coming. It's all part of the plan. But there is no hostility between the Son and the Father through any of this other than the father treating the son that way because he's got our sin on him. But here on the front end, before it happens, he says, I'm not alone. The father will be with me. And even at the end, after the wrath is poured out, he then says, I trust you, father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's only for that short time where he has our sin on him that there's a, a breach in their relationship. He says, I'm not alone. The father is with me. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you will have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Think about what these men are going to go through. After they abandon Jesus and they watch him crucified and they're undone at that sight, on the third day, they see him alive, and then they spend some time with him, and then he ascends into heaven, and then they receive the Holy Spirit, 
and they go preaching and teaching the truth of Jesus Christ throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and some of them even to the ends of the earth. And for the next 30 years, depending on how long each of them lived, they tell everyone about Jesus. But they suffer the hands of the Jews who didn't like this message. Church history will tell us that all of these men, except John, who's writing this, this epistle, or this gospel, that the other men all gave their life for the gospel. We know James is the first apostle to be killed. He's beheaded not too far into the book of Acts. Peter, church history tells us, was eventually crucified upside down. And the others were beaten, mocked, scourged, arrested time and time again, and eventually executed for their faith. They had tribulation in this world. And Jesus is telling them ahead of time, this is coming, and he says, take courage because I've overcome. They can take your earthly life. They cannot take your eternal life because I win ultimately. Well, think, fast forward to our day. We're not in danger like they were of being persecuted for our faith. Not right now, not here. Certain parts of the world for sure, but not here in America. You know, people can mock us. They can tweet about us, you know, and we need to get a little thicker skin when it comes to some of those things. But there, there's, the world is trying. We know we have a brother up in a northern part of Colorado that owns a cake shop, right? And the world tried to say to him, you are not allowed to segregate, to, to, uh, to, to refuse service to certain people. And he didn't actually refuse service to the homosexuals. He just refused to write anything on the cake that endorsed their wedding. And the courts, the, 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 the opponents tried to have him arrested. And so far, he's winning that legal battle at great expense and great time. But it continues. And we don't know where the final say is going to be on that. So there's, there's some of that. But Jesus says, take courage. I have overcome the world. We must not become discouraged in all of this. We must not think the world wins because the world does not win Jesus wins and so we stand firm we preach the gospel and we have his peace because we know the end of the story that's the wonderful news that's what enables us to endure tri tribulation in this life Jesus said it don't fear the man that can kill your body and then can do nothing to you Kill the one, uh, uh, fear the one who can kill your body and then kill your soul. That's God. And if God has saved your soul, you have nothing ultimately to fear. So we need to be strong and courageous, as God told Joshua, because Jesus has overcome. Well, he gives them this advance warning so that uh, later on they would remember these words. Then Jesus turns and he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. This is often called the high priestly prayer. It's a little bit ironic to me that when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, we call that the Lord's Prayer. And here where Jesus is actually praying, we don't call this the Lord's Prayer, but this is the Lord 
praying for the disciples. And here's what he says, chapter 17, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now he's talking about the cross here. This is how he wants the Father to glorify him. Let's finish the, per- the plan. Let's do what we set out to do. By glorifying the Son, the Son glorifies the Father. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That's what he's done for these 12 disciples. Well, 11 of them. He's given them eternal life. This is eternal life, he says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We get a lot of information here in this prayer. Jesus of Nazareth showed up on planet Earth in Mary's womb. Do you realize this? The man Jesus did not exist before he was conceived in Mary. But the second person of the Trinity, the the Son of God, as we call him, he existed before that. He had glory with the Father before he came to earth. And now he's saying, take me back to that glory. This is one of the, the great conundrums of Christianity. There's one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're all one God. Every parent understands how difficult this is to explain because somewhere along the line when their kids are five or six or seven, they come in and say, hey, Dad, I got a question. Jesus is God, right? Right. God can't die, right? Right. Jesus died, right? Right. Jesus is God, right? Right. God can't die, right? Uh Uh-huh. Jesus died, right? Yep. But God can't die, right? Right. But Jesus is God, right? Right. I don't understand. Good. (laughs) Neither can I. There's the mystery here of one God, three persons who are not the same, and yet there's only one God. We are not polytheists. Don't ever tell anybody you believe in three gods. You don't. If you do, the elders would like to meet with you after church. One God, three persons, and the second person, the Son, has two natures. He's a human and he's God. And the God part is all God and the human part is all human. God doesn't need to sleep. Jesus slept. God doesn't eat. Jesus ate. God doesn't die. Jesus died. One person, two natures. The God nature is eternal and existed in glory before Jesus came to the scene. The human nature joined the divine nature 
and he's altogether human. He was born, he ate, he drank, he slept, he died, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven. And the man, Jesus Christ, right now is sitting in the throne room of heaven, reigning over heaven and earth, and he's coming back. And he, think about this, he has joined us in the human race forever. He will never stop being a man. That's how much he loves us. He joined humanity forever. And now he's saying, Lord, Father, restore to me that glory that I had with you before the world was, because I've, got, I've accomplished the mission you gave me. I have introduced these, these men to you, and they believe in you. So he says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I've done, Father, what you called me to do. I have led them to believe in you. I've reconciled them to you. I've proven that I was sent by you by all these miracles that I'm doing, and they get it. And so now my job here is done. I can come back to you. I have brought them eternal life. That's what we're talking about here. Not just life here for a few years or decades, eternal life he has led them to. He's giving, given them eternal life. How do they get eternal life? They know God and they know Jesus Christ. Did you see that in verse 3? This is eternal life that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You have to have both. There's only one God. There's a lot of false gods out there, but there's only one true God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And how do you know if you know the one true God? You know his son Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Lord. Right? Paul goes on and says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved from his wrath, which means you have eternal life. You've got to confess with your mouth. That, that's not just saying words. That's believing them, saying them because you believe them. And, and what is it we confess? Jesus is what? Lord. That means king. That means master. That means our lives are lived in submission to him. Again, anybody can say the words, yes, Jesus is Lord, and then go treat him as though he's not Lord. No, if we confess him as Lord, we are saying, you're my master, and I will do what you tell me to do. And I believe that God raised you from the dead, and I am forgiven. That's the heart of the gospel. That brings eternal life. And Jesus accomplished his mission. He led these men to eternal life. And now he can return home. But what's the future for these men? It's building the kingdom. So Jesus came to earth to establish the kingdom. But his part 
as a man the first time was to die on the cross because we needed to be cleansed. We needed the sacrifice, the, the, the substitute sacrifice in, in our behalf because of our sin. Once he raised from the dead, he went to heaven, and he's not just sitting up there twiddling his thumbs. He's not up there just waiting for the Father to send him back. No, he's building his kingdom. So he went to the throne where he's executing his master plan to take over planet Earth. Remember, we saw this at Christmas time. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And he sent these men out to begin infiltrating the kingdom of darkness and taking it for his own kingdom. So he prays for them. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf... I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In this prayer right here, he's praying for these 11 men. And when he says, I'm not praying for the world, he's saying, I'm not praying for those. In this, the whole upper room discourse, the world is made up of the Jews who want to destroy Jesus. Those who are against Jesus. And he says, I'm not praying for them right now. I'm praying for these 11. He says, all things that are mine, Father, are yours, and the things that are yours are mine, and I have been glorified in these men. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. So I'm coming up to you, Father. They are here, so I'm praying for them. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you've given me. That's important because when we think about keeping him in the Father's name, we think it's referring to the Father. It's not. It's Jesus. That's the name God has given him. Jesus, Christ, Lord. Lord, keep them in your name which you've given to me that they may be one even as we are. This is John's first statement here about the fellowship that we have with each other and with God. He'll, he'll expand this in, the, in 1 John when he says, we have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with each other. They're, they're connected because if God is your Father, then all of God's children are your brothers and sisters. And so we have fellowship this way and fellowship this way. He's saying, Father, give us unity in you and in each other. Unity matters to God. We're in his family. Every parent here understands unity matters in the family, right? It's chaotic when the kids are disunified. And when they're little and they sit in the back seat and they squabble constantly in the car, you want unity. It tests your patience sometimes. And you understand how much better it is when the kids get along and are all working toward the same end. Well, that's true of God's family, too. He wants unity. He wants love for one another because we are unified with him. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He's talking there of Judas, of course, who betrayed the Lord. This was his predetermined outcome, that he would abandon Christ. But the others remained faithful. Why? Because they're just such great men. 
not what he says. Father, I kept them. I guarded them. I protected them. He's protecting us, and we need that protection. We need to be kept. But now I come to you, he says, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Why? Because the plan is they need to transform the world. And if I take them out of the world, they can't do that. So I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. No, I'm coming to you, but I'm leaving them here. But here's what I am asking. Keep them from the evil one. The evil one is, is, um, is Satan, of course. And Jesus' concern is not that Satan would bring about their death. That might happen. There's a, a, a strong admonition in uh, Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus is speaking to the churches and when he speaks to the church at Smyrna. He says, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison and some of you he will even kill. Hold fast even to the point of death and then I will reward you with eternal life. As we pray for our missionaries and we pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, the first concern isn't that they would be spared persecution. The first concern is that they will remain faithful to the end. Now that, that's hard because our heartstrings are tugged when we hear about Christians suffering, and especially if there are children, right? When, we send, when, when God calls our children overseas as missionaries, which he's done for some of you, and, and they go to hostile territory, it's hard. And there's a natural inclination to pray, Lord, don't let anything happen to them physically. And that's fine, but your first concern has to be, Lord, protect their soul from the temptation of the evil one so that in the face of persecution, they will stand firm. That's what Jesus has in mind here. Uh, Father, keep them, protect them, deliver them from the evil one as he comes to tempt them to walk away from the faith because... It's going to cost them if they stay true. So I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. And guess what? You're here, right? He hasn't taken you out of the world either. He's left you here for a purpose. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. We tend to think of this as worldliness, but he's not talking about uh, sins of the flesh here. He's saying the world is against Jesus. That's what the world does. These men are not of that thinking. They're of the truth, and that's who we must be as well, of the truth, not of those who are against the truth of God. John told us at the beginning of this, go this gospel, this is what Jesus did. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and so on. And he says that God sent the light, Jesus, the light into the world, but the world didn't know him. He sent him to his very own people, the Jews, and they didn't receive him. That's who he's talking about. The world of the Jewish people here are against 
Christ and against these men, and they're going to try to take them out. Jesus says, no, I'm going to leave them here, and I'm asking you, Father, to leave them here, keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, they're of truth. Verse 13, go back to that, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. What is the temptation for these men when persecution comes? Well, one we've already talked about, one temptation is to, to uh, turn away from the truth, right? Somebody comes and says, if you'll just deny Christ, we'll stop beating you. If you'll just deny Christ, we won't behead you. That's a pretty strong temptation to say, you know, I can save myself a lot of pain if I just renounce Christ. What would keep someone faithful to the end? Well, the scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Right? You familiar with that passage? The joy of the Lord is our strength. We are commanded to rejoice always, always without exception, rejoice. This doesn't mean we're always dancing in the aisles. It doesn't mean we're all clapping and saying, this is great, thank you, sir, may I have another? No, it's, it's not that. But beneath all the sorrows, the fears, the struggles, the pain, the persecution that may come, beneath all of that must be true joy if we're going to stand firm against the enemy and against the persecutors. We have eternal life. We must have joy. What, what is it that crushes our joy? We forget we have eternal life. We focus too much on the things here. We think too much about what is not happening the way we like it. We think too much about the pain, about the, the, the disappointments. And we get our eyes off of eternal life. If you place your hope in this life, there's lots of reason to despair. Right? There's, even at its best, this life is not what we hope eternal life will be. We keep our focus on the truth that after this life comes glory and joy beyond our wildest dreams, that will cause us to stand firm even in the midst of persecution and suffering. We have to be a people of joy. These men had joy. Do you remember one of those passages that I love to preach on, I love to think about it, it, it boggles my mind. These men were hauled in before the Sanhedrin and they were flogged. The word that's used there is not like one slap across the face. They used either a scourge, which was, you know, kind of a, a long handle with lots of whips with bone chips on them. You, you get the picture? Can you imagine somebody whipping you with long strands of leather with bone chips on them? or rods that would have left them head to toe covered with bruises. They beat them with these instruments. They told them, we warned you not to preach in the name of Jesus, and you keep doing it. And they had them beaten. 
and I, I just have this visual in my head of these men limping away from the beating, bloody and bruised, and they can't, their lips are swell, swollen because of the beating. They can hardly, you can hardly understand what they say because they're beaten so badly. And the scripture tells us they were praising God that he counted them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Can you imagine? Praising God. Singing these songs. Okay, maybe not these songs, but singing songs of praise and joy be glorified, Lord, in my life. Take this life laid down like the one that you gave and be glorified. Lord, it blows my mind that you would consider me worthy to be pummeled and whipped for your name. The only explanation is they believed and they had joy. We have eternal life. Jesus came to die on the cross for my sins and I'm going to live forever. That's a pretty long time. And someday I'm going to be in a place and a time when nobody can flog me again. No one can hurt me again. Where I won't need the glasses. And I don't have to fear man. I don't have to fear disease. I don't have to ha fear people who say they're my friends and then turn on me. I don't have to fear anything. No disappointment. No downside. No, the honeymoon's over. But one day is better than the last. That's true. So how can we not rejoice at no matter what the Lord brings into our life? Again, doesn't mean we're all clapping our hands all the time and saying, ooh, this is great. Joy is more profound than that. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's a joy that drives true happiness in even a, a, a sort of superficial way. Sometimes it's a joy that lies underneath grief and sorrow. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who know that whatever the Lord brings in this life, he's refining us, he's teaching us, he's making us more like Jesus, who is the man of sorrows who suffered, and the end of this is eternal life. And so we have to have joy. Always. Paul says, rejoice in all things. Now, I'm going to tell you this again. Rejoice in everything. So part of our job is to figure out when I don't have joy, why not? And the answer is probably because you're looking in the wrong place. How can you look at the cross and bounce from the cross 
to what's coming in eternal life and not be filled with the joy of the Lord. It will drive us to obedience, to steadfastness, and to fruitfulness in the Lord. All right, do we have any questions? One? Oh, more than I can handle. All right, I love it. Who is the son of destruction in verse 12? Uh, is that the son of perdition? Somebody's got a different verse? If you answer my questions, then you might reveal who sent it in, just so you know. Um, that is Judas. Judas is the son of perdition. How does God's predetermined plan for Judas to betray Jesus fit with free will? Ha! <laughs> uh, fits perfectly. Well, it all depends on what you mean by free will. All right, I'm going to give a short answer because I'm committed to being done on time, even though I can't remember what time I started. Um, and then if you want to come talk to me afterward, uh, we can get into this more. So uh, some people define free will as uh, our, our decision-making is completely um, unaffected by anything. If that's what you mean by free will, then the Bible does not say that we have that. If it means that you actually make choices, and they're your choices, that's what the Bible talks about when it talks about our will. You make choices. I make choices. I'm saying what I want to say right now. But our choices are driven by our desires. Right? So the person who's enslaved to sin is freely choosing to sin. Nobody's making him sin, but internally his desires want to sin. That's why he does it, okay? Uh, so Judas freely betrayed Jesus. It's not like Judas said, Jesus, man, come on, I want to be faithful to you. I, I want to serve you, but you, you making me betray you. I don't want to betray you. He's walking to the, to the Jews, you know, and he's going to get money from them. And he's like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I want to be with Jesus. I love Jesus, but I can't help it. That's not how it went, right? He freely went and betrayed Jesus. And yet, the scripture says, this was all God's plan. It's the simplest way I know how to think of it is there is tension in the scripture between God's will and man's will. God does what he wants, man does what he wants, and somehow man's wants are always God's wants. <laughs> um, Joseph, if you remember at the end of, the, of Genesis, when the brothers come to Joseph and dad has died, Jacob has died, and the brothers are the ones who sold Joseph into slavery, remember that whole story? And now Joseph is basically the king of Egypt. And the brothers, when dad dies, go, uh-oh. Because Joseph, our brother, is now the most powerful man in, in Egypt. And he can have us executed for selling him into slavery. And they are afraid that Joseph is going to do that. Joseph says, you meant this for evil. God meant this for good. Two wills were at work. You did what you wanted to do, brothers. 
God did what he wanted to do, and God meant it for good. You were evil. God was good. God worked out his plan through the decisions of the brothers. And just like the nature of God and the nature of Jesus and all that, your head will explode if you try to figure this out further. We can't. But God does what he's going to do. Man does what he wants to do. And God always gets his way. All right, next. Regarding John 17, 15, is it okay to occasionally pray? I love it. Occasionally pray that God, the Lord would take someone out of the world. Well, I appreciate the, the compassion of this question as opposed to take the enemy out of the world, right? I got a few guys I wouldn't mind him taking out of the world. Um, uh, trying to think, is there ever an example of someone praying like that? Well, the bottom line is your, your, your intent in that prayer would be, Lord, I'm, I, I see their grief and I would like to see their grief spared. So the Lord knows your intent and, and don't worry, it's not like he wasn't planning to take them and, oh, you asked for it? Okay, well, I wasn't going to take them out, but I'll take them out now. So we you know, we don't have to worry about moving God's hand quite that way. Um, I think probably yes, as long as it is what you're really asking is, Lord, I, I'm just grieving for them. I'm asking for you to be gracious and merciful to their suffering. Uh, but we, we don't have any examples of that kind of prayer that I can think of. And so you're probably better off asking for the joy of the Lord to fill them so they can persevere. Uh, one more. Could you speak to the difference between denying Christ versus being faithless? 2 Timothy 2. Talk amongst yourselves for a minute while I get over there. No, I'm kidding. Don't talk. Where is Timothy? Oh, there it is. Okay, yeah, this, this, the second part is easy. Um, so this is what 2 Timothy 2.11 says. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Then he goes negative. And most people read this incorrectly because they don't see the parallel. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That faithfulness on his part is faithful to condemn us. If we are faithless, he will condemn us. That's what he's faithful to do. You don't make it to the end if you abandon the faith. Your part is to stay true to the end. If you are faithless, he will be faithful to condemn you as he, as he promised. Um, I would say those two terms, denying Christ and being faithless, are, are very close to the same. Um, we tend to think of denying Christ as the unbeliever, um, but if you are a believer and then you later deny Christ, then you are not in a good place. You don't want to stand before the Lord having denied him. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Uh, Hebrews 3 tells us that basically the definition of the Christian is the one who perseveres to the end. You've got to hang on. Faithlessness is basically denying Christ. It's, it's rejecting the faith. Uh, no matter what you've said in the past, you were baptized, you grew up in the church, you've got to remain true and hold fast to the gospel 
and confess him as Lord until the end, or you can't be saved. Remember, we don't, the Bible does not teach that you go to heaven because of some decision you made sometime in the past, some, some action you took. You signed a card, you asked Jesus into your heart, you were baptized, whatever. That's, that's not what saves you. What saves you is faith. And faith that doesn't persevere to the end is not saving faith. So our part is to hang on all the way to the end. And that anything else is a rejection of Christ, a denial of Christ, and that. All right, I'm going to wrap it up there. If you have other questions, you can come see me afterward. The three things I want you to grab hold of from this text. We have the peace of Christ. In the midst of tribulation, we have the peace of Christ. He has conquered the world. We win. He wins. One of these days, the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth. Every knee will bow before him. Number two, we have eternal life. We're going to live forever in heaven and ultimately back here on this earth in a glorified creation. Number three, he left his joy. His spirit produces joy. We've got to be people who sing, people who smile, who are full of cheer and gladness. Doesn't mean the hard things aren't hard. Doesn't mean the suffer, suffering things are not suffering. But even in the midst of them, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before us, we persevere in faith. Let's pray. Father, these men went on to serve as amazing examples of those who believed you, who knew you, who, who persevered in joy, and they changed the world. We are the product of their work. 2,000 years later, they were, they were 11, and then 12, and then a few thousand, and now there are millions of believers across this planet, and your kingdom is growing. May we join the mission and through joy and peace, introduce people to you that they too may have eternal life. Amen.